It's been a long time since I had someone to smoke with, and I need to find some weed. I know that it can't happen without my niggas, my niggas, without my niggas, niggas. I know that it can't happen. Where are my niggas? <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of the Bleezy Show. I am your host, the one and only Blair Freaking Fields. So, um, I wanted to start the podcast, kind of leaving off from where my last pod was, because it's been a very interesting week. I want to talk about the whole Antonio Brown situation Obviously, you got to revisit January 6th since yesterday was the anniversary. And I'm going to talk about the situation in Kazakhstan, if you haven't been following, and a movie that I believe everyone should go watch called Don't Look Up. So I'm going to start with Antonio Brown. I'm pretty sure everyone has heard last Sunday at MetLife, he decided in the middle of a game, took his shoulder pads off, took his jersey off, and ran around the perimeter of the field and did jumping jacks in the end zone. We all seen the videos and the photos. Um, we heard all the reasons on why he would do this. The first thing people jumped to was mental health, saying maybe he's suffering from CTE. Maybe he has a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And my first reaction was someone or something must have occurred in the span of the time he was playing on the field from the time he decided to basically quit the team. And I don't think any athlete in professional sports is going to react the way he did for no reason at all, just because, you know. And I feel like it had to be someone that antagonized the situation for him to overreact in the way he did. So yesterday he posted about how you know, this whole week and a half prior to the game, you know, he felt that the training staff and coaches, he communicated with them that his ankle wasn't 100% and that he didn't feel healthy enough to play or comfortable enough that he could be 100% to, to give it his all. And obviously, as a football player, your body is everything. Your body is your business. You know, you don't want to risk injury because – if you, if you can't play, you can't make money, basically. So I'm sure he didn't want to jeopardize himself, maybe put himself through worsening the injury, re-injuring himself, or creating a new injury from this, right? So in the middle of the game, as it's like third mid-third quarter, Antonio Brown claimed that uh, his head coach, who is Bruce Arians, asked Antonio Brown to go on the field. Antonio Brown told the coach, hey, man, you know, my ankle's not – responding the way I needed for it to respond for me to go. I can't play out there because of my ankle. And the coach, you know, basically responded with shouting, all right, you're done. And apparently Antonio Brown claimed he ran his finger across his own throat, like, you know, like the slashing signal, like, you're done, I'm cutting you off. Everybody wants to say that maybe – Antonio Brown was upset because they were keeping him off the field because he did have a million dollar in bonus incentives on the table 
which he would have reached if he was getting more playing time. But if he's saying the opposite, saying I want it off the field, then that obviously doesn't subscribe to the story he's telling. But um, I hate the fact that when people say, you know, I'm going to have to bring up race in this a little bit, but I hate when people say, Blair, why does everything have to be about race? Well, because in this country, the laws, the powers that be, the conditions of leadership and the power that is designed for people who are not minorities makes it about race. So just I'm going to break it down for you guys really quick. Antonio Brown has probably been the best wide receiver in the last seven years, right? So when a white head coach is telling a black player to go on the playing field during the game, even though the player has communicated he's injured, he's hurt, he's communicated with the training staff, the second, well, the first thing the coach should have been like, all right, let me talk to the trainers, take a look at his ankle. You know, let's see, like, if he could, you know, do, they have the, the little bike on the side. They have, like, little drills they could do, right? But his immediate response was, you're done, and right, running the finger across his throat. I'm not saying Bruce Arians is racist or prejudiced in the slightest way, but he has to understand from being a black man, our perspective is when someone does that to us, it could trigger us in the wrong way where we feel unwanted, unheard, and underappreciated. So maybe the context of what he did for that moment in Antonio Brown to Antonio Brown wasn't necessarily the right thing. But I get it. You know, it was all about the heat of the moment. I'm not here to defend Antonio Brown because I think what he how he reacted was 100% wrong. And he probably needed to speak up in another way or talk to another coach about what he was going through. But when you're on a team like that, obviously you guys are trying to reach a common goal of just winning. And I'll give Bruce Arians the benefit of the doubt because, like I said, they were losing to the Jets of all teams. They were down by like two scores at the time. So maybe in the heat of the moment, he felt like anger and the, the pressure and he wasn't going to deal with any nonsense because Antonio Brown is a non, he's a nonsense player, right? He does a lot of antics. But we have to look at the totality of what made him comfortable enough to dismiss Antonio Brown in that type of way, right? So, you know, you should have known that Antonio Brown is a loose cannon and he's going to wreck your team at any time given moment if you respond incorrectly to him. So from his perspective, I could see a situation where those words combined with that, those actions said towards him in that moment, he felt justified in his reaction. You know, I don't think a black coach who was in the same situation as Bruce Arians would have said those words and made that gesture. You know, I can't see Mike Tomlin or Lovey Smith, Anthony Lynn, Tony Dundee doing that. So maybe they would have communicated him in a more appropriate manner which would have made Antonio Brown feel more heard. So at that moment, I have to say maybe the other players thought, you know, the coach was overreacting or Antonio Brown was overreacting. But if you try to force Antonio Brown, one of the greatest players, you know, in the last 10 years to play injured, what message does that set for the rest of the team who probably don't have as much talent as him? You know, what type of reputation and cachet is that setting for that organization? Because they're saying, well, we're going to force people to play injured, even though 
if that person tears the ACL or breaks a bone, there's a chance they're probably not going to resign because no team's going to sign an injured person. So it's a messy situation from all sides, but I think we have to give Antonio Brown a little bit more leeway in where he's coming from because he's not like a regular player. He has his own way of doing things. And I'm just trying to see from his perspective on how he would have, how his reaction would have been justified in his head. All right. So to move on from that, there's really no transition uh, I could make here or segue. Yesterday was the one year anniversary of, I say, the second worst day of American history in the century, in this century since 2000, right? So last episode, uh, I talked about how January 6th and 9 11 were obviously like similar. And a lot of people out there idiotically, first thing they compare is like the amount of people that died on 9 11. The people who died on you know January 6th. Obviously, you know, if you're an idiot, if you go straight to like death toll numbers. And I hate that people that try to think of it like that. Because obviously 9-11 had what 2,000 plus people die in a terrorist attack on America from forest terrorist terrorist groups that felt threatened by our way of life and how we impose our way of life on the rest of the world. So what happened last year was domestic terrorism at its peak. When you have people coming from all corners of the country to support a president who has done nothing but divide, lie, and mislead this country, you people are treasonous and insurrectionists. You know, if Guantanamo Bay was still operating, those people should be locked up right next to the Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS terrorists there, right? So what people are feeling who went to that uh, insurrection, they felt like it was their American right to do that. That was the same day the electoral votes were being counted by representatives all over the country. And these people felt like we're not going to let them take power because we feel like Donald Trump is the power of this country at B. So last year, you know, obviously after the aftermath of January 6th, people were on television talking about, oh, if this was 100,000 black people surrounded the Capitol, the outcome would be vastly different. And I don't know any black person in history who has stormed a government building, took photos of classified documents, went through the mail of senators and House of Representatives, went to the office, put their feet on the office table, and could live to tell about it. Right? So to me, that's just like some cynical... Like, I always say... People hate when I say this, like, being white is a right in this country, being black is a privilege, right? So these, most of these Caucasian people obviously felt like it was their right and their duty and their American responsibility to take back what they feel like is theirs. So I'm just going to hit you guys off with some quick stats from January 6th, right? So the government estimated that at least 2,500 people took place in storming the Capitol building. Now, the authorities have made 700 arrests since that day, all right? And they say they're going to plan to make hundreds and thousands of more arrests, but we'll see how that goes. I think the most damning stat for me is that at least 57 of those individuals who play the role in the events of storming the Capitol that day, including people who are arrested, 57 of those people at least are running for office in 2022. So now the insurrectionists can run for office because they're going to use that as a 
a way for them to drive their their polls and their lead their elections. And only in America, right? There are people who have been locked up since the 90s and late 80s who can't get a job, who can't even vote when they leave jail. But now we're allowing people who probably committed one of the most tragic crimes and offenses in U.S. history to run for local state offices. But this is where America is. And I'm pissed because when minorities get on parole or probation for minor things, it follows us like a dark cloud throughout the course of our life. Someone could be on parole for something they did 10, 15 years ago, but the second they you know, speed through traffic, they're right back in jail. And now I feel like we're giving... We're waving a white flag to these domestic uh, terrorists, and we just need to wake up. I think Roy Woods Jr., he's a comedian on Daily Show. If you haven't seen his stand-up, check it out. He said it best, I think, when he was like, yo, they'll give black people everything except legislation. We ask for a law, they give us a mural. We ask for you know, proper reparations, they make Juneteenth a national holiday. So I think this is why the presidency of Joe Biden and the administration is so important because black people are on the brink of literally a mental explosion meltdown in this country. Um, Most of our lives haven't changed in the last 20, 25 years, and we don't feel like the government is encouraging us, investing in our well-being, investing in our education or our health, trying to make us, you know, more like our peers who are doing social economically better than us. And a lot of us behind closed doors, we're discussing all the shit that's happening. Some of us are planning, and then there's other of us that are plotting. The ones who are planning are trying to do it the right way. They're trying to get, you know, some candidates from the community that they could uh, you know, put in these freeholder seats, put in these um council seats, probably make them judges and representatives and eventually senators and governors. And then there's a, those of us who are plotting. We're tired of voting every year just for these politicians and lawmakers to abandon us. We're tired of working in these uh, companies and these institutions for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of our lives. And we see our peers you know, move up tremendously faster through the economic ladder than us. And some of us are plotting to do bad things because we know that's the only way we're going to get people to listen to us, to watch us, and hopefully we'll get the results that we seek. And I know some of you are saying, like, the plotters sound like terrorists now. I was like, no, we're not terrorists. We're just trying to get what's ours. We're just trying to get back what isn't being given to us. And I don't know, you know, honestly, I think 2022 might be the the year you're going to see a lot of, you know, Black people, brown brown people, like, speak up and really be out there because we see what's going on. We see the, the divide that's happening in the country, and we like, yo, like, at the end of the day, you know, these people are being treated differently than these people. And that's going to continue to happen. We're going to make changes ourselves. We're going to feel just empowered as they did on January 6th. So, you know, you heard it from here first. Don't be surprised. If you see a bunch of us doing what they did, but in a different manner, obviously, but trying to speak for something more of the lights of like we're we're, we're we want to be included in this country and we want to be part of society without 
people trying to, you know, throw us under the bus or trying to make us feel like we're less than, you know, or inferior to anybody. And that brings me to my next point. If you guys haven't heard about Kazakhstan, uh, I would suggest reading and watching an article on it, watching news clips on it. The situation over the last five, six days has escalated rapidly. I don't have all the details, obviously, but I'm going to give you guys what I've been reading from the articles and watching from the news. So Kazakhstan currently is in a state of emergency. About a week ago, citizens started a protest about the rising fuel prices that they were saying it's beyond unfair, right? It was like ridiculous. And then another movement broke off from that about the lack of economic opportunity and educational opportunities in Kazakhstan. Then an additional group broke off and evolved from that about the masses of how Kazakhstan needs infrastructural change immediately because it's being run by the same family, which is the Nazarbayev family that pretty much runs everything in the country. They have the government. Uh, they own a lot of the food, uh, oil, schools, you name it. They, they basically run the country. It's just one family. So in addition to that, they, you know, people are saying, like, we haven't been able to move up in society because this family is actively, you know, oppressing a large population of the citizens from access to resources that could better themselves. Sounds familiar, right? So in the last two to three days, uh, dozens of police officers, protesters have been killed because of deadly riots, anti-government rallies, government buildings being swarmed and burned down by these protesters. Um, they're going to like the political leaders' houses, trying to drag them out, trying to burn down the houses. So it's it's chaos over there. And I'm not a reporter by any stretch of the imagination, but this seems to be... I'm not going to call it treason or insurrectionism the way January 6th unfolded. I think this is a movement about liberation to free a lot of people who have felt they've been controlled by the government and they haven't been able to reach or communicate with the government on a level where they feel like human beings. And this is why when you're running a country, you just can't have the billionaires and millionaires calling the shots. Eventually, the people who are middle class, lower middle class, they're going to catch on and realize that there's a small group of people benefiting off the larger population out there, especially their labor. Now, there's reports that are saying that apparently there's terrorist groups in the country infiltrating Kazakhstan, trying to cause a uprising because they want the Kazakhstan uh, government to fall, yada, 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 and swoop in, taking control of regions. Look, I think my elders said it the best. They told me, Watch the rest of the world because eventually what happens over there will soon happen over here in America. And I even posted, I think, last night on Instagram um, that 2020 was just a precursor to what's truly to come in our country. And if you don't understand what's happening in our government, uh, then you need to really adapt to what society really is about. And Americans, believe it or not, we have it good. Nobody... In my lifetime, or even my grandparents' lifetime, has ever experienced a war on American soil. You know, we don't know how it feels like to be a citizen of a country where troops from other countries have to come in, occupy areas, trying to maintain peace, and you have to live with that on a daily basis. Could you imagine waking up one day and there's a war going on a city over from you? You, you know, think about the calamity of the situation and the craziness 
that would ensue right there afterwards. So I think the whole thing about stability is very important. People don't want to work their asses off just to be broke at the end of the month. People don't want to take out $100,000 in loan just to not have a career opportunity in their field. People don't want to live in a neighborhood where last week they are paying $1,200 in rent, and then six months down the road, because of some gentrification, they're paying $2,000. You know, I always said the best way for America to learn about itself is to live with itself. So I always suggest, hey, kids who go to school in the suburbs, they should spend a semester going to school in the inner city so they can understand how it feels for those kids to live on a day-to-day basis. A person who lives in, you know, a rich part of California in the hill somewhere, go to school in Kansas or West Virginia for a couple months to see how those kids, you know, go to school and have to deal with the daily roughness of their lives. You're not surrounded by luxury and easiness all the time. So our main problem as America is we don't know who we are or what we want to be, right? And we look at social media and we see everyone living their best life. In reality, most of these people ain't trying to be in the limelight or fantasize about celebrity culture. In reality, most of us just want to be regular folk. We just want to take care of our family, have our own little acre of land, and just let peace be peace. All right, so last but not least, I'm going to talk about uh, Don't Look Up, a film that came out like a couple weeks ago. Personally, I really like the film. I like the symbolism and the messaging around it. It was very strong. The acting, obviously, with the cast that they had could have been a lot better, but I'm not going to kill them for it. A lot of people told me that they didn't like the film, but I don't know how you could not like a film that is so relatable to the times that we're living through now. So spoiler if you haven't seen the film, it's about a group of scientists from Michigan discovering a comet coming towards Earth, and they basically have six months before the comet makes impact. So throughout the film, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, the main character, he's the scientist informing the government the news stations, various outlets of the impact. Meanwhile, when they told the White House, basically the White House said they're going to assess the situation, see what they could do about it, and you know plan accordingly. And throughout the film, you have this billionaire who's trying to solve the issue, but he ends up trying to mine the comet uh, from for raw material so they can make money. The news station... Is making it political and making it toxic, talking about is the comet real or not. Uh, and there's just a whole lot of messiness and misinformation uh, going around, being tossed around throughout the entirety of the film. So towards the end of the film, like the last 20, 30 minutes, the comet comes in view of people on Earth, right? So now it's two sides saying, hey, look up. And there's other side saying don't look up because the, they don't want people to think the comment's real. So now instead of using the six months to be productive and trying to solve the issue of deflecting the comment or saving humanity, we use that whole time to bicker and argue with each other. And I think the biggest lesson I learned was listen to the experts and not people who just want to spew nonsense and create division. And not to beat a dead horse, but when this pandemic all started... I had people trying to tell me, you know, it was a pandemic, this virus. They wanted to release it upon the masses to control population. And my response was just like, yo, if scientists and virologists are working 29 hours a day to combat this virus, it's hard for me 
to believe that this virus is a hoax, which I found to be disrespectful to the people who died and the people who are working on it. So the fact that people are willing to believe conspiracies more than expertise is a tragedy to you know, our human intelligence. And I think this film should be watched by everybody. If you haven't gone seeing it, go see it. Really sit down and really observe it, examine it for what it is, because this is how our society is being ran. Uh, we're unraveling quicker than we realize. And I think, you know, our own stupidity is going to be our demise. All right. So um, I'm going to wrap the pot up. I'm going to post a little poem I recorded earlier as well. Uh, I really do appreciate everybody listening. I would love to have uh, a guest on to discuss a lot of these issues so we really could have an open forum and an open conversation about how we could change the way you know we live in today's society because we we live in some crazy times right now. But thank you everyone for tuning in to the Bleezy Show. Um, follow me on Instagram at Bo Limerence, B-E-A-U-L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E. And uh, that's today's episode. Thank you, everybody. Have a great uh, weekend. We don't give a fuck, man. We don't give a fuck. We don't give a fuck, man. We don't give a fuck. Trying to live it up, man. Trying to live it up. Cause we don't give a fuck, man. We don't give a fuck. So many lies told through these tears. So many times told through these lies. So many lies seen through these eyes, man. I be flimmering up, cause we don't give a fuck. We don't give a fuck, man. We don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck, man. I don't give a fuck. I ain't giving up. Man, I ain't giving up, cause we don't give a fuck. Nah, we don't give a fuck. Living on the lifestyle age. Living on the lifestyle, man. Got me really confused right now, cause we don't give a fuck. Nah, we don't give a fuck. We don't give a fuck. Nah, we don't give a fuck. Never giving up, man, never giving up. Why we don't give a fuck, man, we don't give a fuck.